Hello and welcome back to Join the Conversation. I'm George Christopher Thomas, your radio talk show host and podcaster, and we are broadcasting and coming at you from the University of Alaska Fairbanks in College, Alaska. So now I invite you to sit back and enjoy this next interview with Charlotte Dennant. Charlotte is an attorney and journalist that also writes books. She joins us from Burlington, Vermont, and we discuss the Middle East pipelines, the CIA, the FBI, freedom of information requests, the British Empire, and assassinations. What is this show, Join the Conversation, you ask? Well, in the era of fake news and neo-yellow journalism, this podcast focuses on using academic insight and peer-reviewed understandings to get the real story out there. By basing the conversation in a college atmosphere, the focus is a combination of learning and accuracy that lays down the foundation for comprehending complex issues and concepts. Our host, which is me, invites you to join the conversation by listening as we bring in a cadre of guests from all over America and the world. This idea of peer-reviewed academia meeting media in real time is the newest concept in journalism. So on with the show. Our eighth show is with Charlotte Dennett. This interview is about 58 minutes long. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, uh, non-binary earthlings, thank you once again for uh, listening to join the conversation here on KSUA 91.5 FM uh, up here in uh, Fairbanks, Alaska. We have a very special guest with us today. She was conceived in a cave at the ruins of Petra and Jordan. Uh, she is a journalist and attorney and uh, is going to give us some insight into uh, the politics of oil, and uh, we're going to relate that to climate change. So thank you very much, Charlotte Dennett, Correct. for joining us. Hi there. Hey, that's great. You're the only person who's picked up on the fact that I was conceived in a Bedouin cave at Petra. <laughs> well, it, uh, it certainly makes for a good intro for the show. So um, I guess thank your parents for that. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> Right. Uh, not to give you something to think about uh, the details of, but yes, uh, <laughs> that was in your book and your book, uh, Follow the Pipelines, Uncovering the Mystery of a Lost Spy and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil. Um, couldn't be more uh, topical and poignant now. Um, let's just jump into the news of the day and uh, Russia invading the Ukraine. Is that all over an oil pipeline? Well, I, I see the uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline as being very integral to the whole thing. I mean, you cannot talk about this crisis, this war, without talking about the pipeline, the Nord Stream 2. And the bottom line on that is that uh, it's Russian-owned. Uh, it is um, Russian, actually, European finance. Um, and for years, the U.S. has tried to prevent that pipeline from going into operation. It's supposed to, it's, it has finally been completed even after so many efforts to prevent it. Uh, and it was supposed to get certified in the summer, this summer. But the, late, the first round of sanctions that were leveled at Russia were against this pipeline. So that gives you a good idea of how paramount uh, the uh, U.S.-NATO alliance saw, and, and particularly I would say the U.S. saw uh, uh, blocking this pipeline from going online because uh, they were worried that it would make Europe even more dependent as, than it is now on Russian natural gas. And what they're trying to, because now Europe gets 40% of its energy from Russia. And with the pipeline, they were going to get more. And so what the U.S. is trying to do is to um, flood the European market with uh, American fracked gas and LNGs. And uh, they, the, the U.S. was actually able to pressure 
um, the uh, Germans to um, not certify the pipeline. And in return, there would be help in, in developing a new port for LNG uh, offloads of natural gas. So I look at this whole horrific war as um, a typical example of the great game for oil, where you've got two gigantic superpowers duking it out over who is going to be supplying Europe with oil. And actually, it, it, it's an example of endless wars, only I'm calling this the, uh, the possibly will become the mother of all energy wars if it gets into a larger conflagration, because it involves Europe now. Before it used to be just uh, um, proxies would fight among themselves over the roots of pipelines, but there were still the gigantic superpowers were uh, in charge. And that's what I found out when my uh, father went on his last secret mission. And it was, he was the, America's first master spy in the Middle East. And he went to Saudi Arabia to determine the route of another massive pipeline project. It was the biggest industrial venture on the part of the US at its time, the pipeline construction carrying Saudi oil to a, a terminal point on the Mediterranean, namely Lebanon or Palestine. Those were the two terminal points that were being discussed as um, where the route would end up. And um, it ultimately, there had to be a coup in, in Syria uh, to, to allow it to pass through Syria because the Syrian regime of uh, uh, President Kuwatli was overthrown. Because and that was he the, the CIA's, that was the, you know, the, their first birthday party, right, in 1949. Um, and your dad worked for the, the, CIA, the CIA, but the group before, what were they called? The, the Central Intelligence Group. So Correct, correct. Your knowledge of the Middle East and the oil politics there, I mean, we couldn't be talking to a better source. And does it really come down to the oil? Is that, I mean, there, it's not a religious war. They, it's, it's more of a natural resource war when you really peel the onion. I mean, you're talking about Ukraine now, right? No, just in general, like even the oh, Middle oh, East, general. it all comes down to oil. That, that's what I discovered. Once I, once I looked into all the intrigues around uh, Tapline, the Trans-Arabian Pipeline. And uh, there's this great article in the New York Times, March 3, 1947. And it's all described in, in my book, but um, it lays out uh, all the different uh, countries that might have been um, jealous of the pipeline, didn't want it to go through. And it, the, the article tended to focus on the British and the Russians were particularly alarmed. Uh, the, the Brits, because they had total control of the Middle East up, at that, up till that time. And here was this American upstart, the, the United States getting an exclusive, exclusive concession uh, for the oil of Saudi Arabia. And that's what boosted the US into a great power is Saudi oil. I could go on and on about that. But then having learned all the intrigues involved uh, and, and, and you know, a lot of it happens out of view by spies, for instance, you know, they, they got to check out what the safest route is and then they have to figure how they're going to protect it. And that usually entangles the military. And then what also gets it tangled in is the banks because the banks won't fund the pipeline unless there's stability. So these mm -hmm. themes have been carrying on through the past 70 years. And I particularly started to zero in after the, uh, uh, the wars in Afghanistan and um, Iraq. And I found that there were pipeline struggles directly involved with those conflicts. It's, it's does, kind of shocking. It go to, I mean, it, it, if you look at it, I am happy to blame the British. Uh, my wife is English. My great grandfather, uh, going five generations back, fought the English in the American Revolution. They, I love the Fourth of July. So if it uh, truly, but uh, it, does it go back to after World War One when they carved up the Ottoman Empire and then just uh, tack on 
the British Navy switching from uh, coal to oil. I mean, that seems to be a, a major turning point in like why everyone cares about the Middle East. Absolutely. And again, that is not well known. Uh, I was just talking recently about uh, comparing the Ukraine crisis with World War One, and uh, I, I decided to revisit uh, Barbara Tuckman's book um, on 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 the war. Uh, sorry, I just I just got it off, but whatever. Um, anyway, you know she she chronicles the uh, how World War One happened in the Guns of August, her famous book, and and she argues that. Uh, argues the failure of diplomacy and going to war that no one wanted. And one thing I will uh, contest is I believe uh, that the British may have been largely behind World War I happening. And that's because of a couple of factors. One, the uh, conversion of the British Navy to oil, as you say, uh, which was much more efficient and it was cheaper. And Churchill realized that, quote, we're gonna to have to fight on a sea of troubles because of this, because Britain didn't have any oil. They only had lots of coal. No, they're so an he, island, they're like a little island. Yeah, and so he, in order to support the British empire, uh, the, the number one major war, a first class war game as they called it, uh, was to get the oil of Iraq. And what happened is the Germans had struck a deal with the Ottomans, as you say, Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, that uh, the Germans would build a railroad that would go from Berlin all the way to Baghdad. It's called the Berlin to Baghdad Railroad. And uh, that had really alarmed uh, the British and other powers, because part of the deal was that uh, the Ottomans were going to grant Germany oil rights along the route of the pipeline. Well, mm. this was just anathema uh, to the British, and uh, they wanted to make sure that that pipeline did not go through Serbia. Does that country come to mind as a, a you know, the origin of the uh, assassination of the Arctic. Franz Ferdinand. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the, the, it was stopped. The, 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 the railroad was stopped. It, it, it got pretty far. Uh, I've, got, I've got a map in the book that shows how far it got. But the point is that historians are now pretty much agreeing that the Berlin to Baghdad Railroad not pipeline because there weren't pipelines in this period during World War One. I. I don't think so. Not major ones. Uh, the railroad was the the huge threat to British imperial interests. Um, and then there's another aspect of of it all, and that means that yes, they did they did get a hold of the oil of Iraq in World War One, and. You know, it's one thing to control the oil, but it's another thing to distribute it, to, to send it to market. And that's where pipelines come in. And so um, I started to go back in time and, and look at, um, well, what happened? How did, how did they get that oil to the British Navy? And the answer is um, there, there is a pipeline. There's actually two pipelines that were built uh, after World War One, actually, and um, but but even in 1917, they were looking at a terminal point in Palestine for Iraqi oil, and the idea was that uh, a Jewish national homeland would be supported by the British government, uh, and and most people read what's called the Balfour Declaration. Mm -hmm. as the official document that authorized uh, the, the creation of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Uh, but what most people don't know is that there, there are only two people that were party to this uh, so-called declaration. And it was actually, it was only a letter. And, and it was written by Lord Balfour, who was then the uh, uh, foreign minister 
of Britain. And uh, Walter de Rothschild, which was the head of the Rothschild families, were the biggest family in oil in Europe. And, and Israelis have been able to declassify some documents now that show that, uh, gee, it sure would be helpful if we had uh, European Jews who we could trust being placed in uh, Haifa, Palestine to protect the pipeline that was going to be built from Iraq to uh, a, a terminal point on the Mediterranean. And lo and behold, the Iraq Petroleum Company was created and it uh, had one branch of the pipeline going to Haifa. The other branch was going to Lebanon, which was also um, has a has always had since independence from the French, a Christian uh, being the president and the prime minister is a Sunni Muslim. That's how, so, so anyway, what I'm saying is you can go all the way back to 2011 or 2017 to find uh, some very interesting hitherto unknown facts about World War One and what the some of the real goals were. So that did they just... That was a long-winded answer. I'm sorry. No, that's fantastic. You, uh, <laughs> It's an easier interview for me. Uh, <laughs> you, and and you seem to know what you're talking about. I mean, you're... Uh, but so after World War One and the Ottoman Empire falls because they were on the... They picked the wrong side in World War One. Yeah. Um, yeah. The British just came in and just made artificial countries. I mean, essentially, Iraq is three different countries, it is Sunni, Shiite, and uh, Kurdish in the north. And so their jurisdictional map drawing was gonna be based on just getting oil uh, for for their Navy. I mean, it, the, the it, I mean, speak to the lines in the Middle East. I mean, who drew them? It was the winners of World War One, was it not? Uh, yeah, it, it was the winners of, of World War One, that's true. But, but uh, broken up, after World War One, uh, was the Ottoman Empire that um, controlled a lot of the Middle East. And if you look at a map of the, of the Middle East uh, in uh, the 1940s, um, you will see different countries were carved out. And um, for instance, there's there's Haifa. I mean, there's Palestine. There's Lebanon and there's uh, Iraq. And so interestingly enough, I found out that part of the boundaries then between showing the boundary of Jordan as it relates to Palestine, followed the route of the, of the pipeline, the, the Kirkuk Iraq Haifa pipeline. It's all about controlling oil. And, and the one thing that, that so often gets missed, even in the current debate around um, Ukraine is that the uh, the main reason why all major powers are still looking for oil, still competing for oil, despite all the 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 need to turn to alternatives uh, resources, change, yeah. uh, is because it is it remains the fuel of the military. And isn't it? I found it really interesting that that convoy in Ukraine. Uh, got bogged down, couldn't move because they ran out of gas. Now, <laughs> I thought that was- If only real. they were solar powered. Oh my God, <laughs> yeah, right. But, but uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have expected that of the Russians because the Russians have plenty of gas. I mean, it, it was just bad logistics, I think. But with regard to both World War One and World War Two, the Germans sure, sure learned a hard lesson that uh, they lost, they lost both wars because their war machine ran out of gas. Mm. And Hitler was so, so struck by that, that he was gonna use the IG Farben plant and did use it to create artificial um, fuel. And um, so that just goes to show you, if you aspire to be a superpower, until you wean your military off of oil, uh, you've got you've got to find it everywhere you can. So it isn't it's a uh, energy security is the word that's now come so to the fore. Why wouldn't the Pentagon and uh, the powers that be, the top brass, uh, make a make climate change and solving it a national security issue 
so they can pour billions of dollars in it, you know, just like the $500 toilet seat or, you know, the $10,000 hammer that they had to buy. Like, why isn't America taking the next step and saying, hey, you, you know, our robots and drones are solar powered and we use the sun's energy to, you know, maim and kill people. <laughs> well, who knows? I mean, is I that mean, the future? I mean, you would think, I mean, it's going to. It's getting tired and old and stale. Just the the constant wars uh, uh, over oil. Uh, I mean, it's we need to move into like green wars and then space wars. You know, I mean, it's well, it, it's a time for a new whole uh, chapter in uh, yeah. humans killing humans. Well, yeah, really, it, it is so <laughs> pathetic. I mean, hundred years from now, if we're if we've survived, we we would just look back at this time gassed at, at it's, it's like a it's like a drunk sailor on a friday night just uh, just spending uh money and, and just wasting oil just like a crazy like why not let's let's get crazy but uh looking well, wait, at wait let me throw in let me throw in i'm sorry to no, go go before, before i forget nukes nuclear power that's what they're looking at now is I that mean, why Russia's in the Ukraine? Is it's not for an oil pipeline? Is it for the fifteen nuclear reactors? Oh, uh, there is the whole reason that I think the Russians invaded um, Ukraine was because uh, the West and NATO broke their promise in the early nineteen nineties uh, when uh, Russia dissolved. I mean, the Soviet Union. And uh, there was an agreement that uh, NATO would not expand uh, to, Eastern its, to Eastern Europe. And, and, and that's what happened. They broke that. Well, how many countries, like just looking at the map, uh, what countries came into NATO on the Eastern European side that, uh, you know, count for us breaking our word? Oh, yeah, yeah. A lot of them. You just look at the map. The former Soviet countries that that then joined NATO, though that was a, you know, that was um, right was on their part, doorstep. That was part of uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski's whole plan to um, essentially control your Asia and I mean control the world and, and to bring in a gigantic new world order. And uh, he was the national security advisor Carter. to. Jimmy Carter. Yeah. Uh, and one thing, I, I shouldn't get off the, the topic of nukes. I'll come back to it in a second. But um, now I lost it. Jimmy Carter. Oh, yeah. I just found out very recently um, that the new uh, U.S. ambassador to Poland is none other than Brzezinski's son. I so saw an is, interview. Yeah, I saw that interview. Yeah. Uh, I was watching like Al Jazeera and they were interviewing him. Yeah, yeah, and and isn't that interesting? Um, because the uh, 2014 uh, quote-unquote Maidan revolution, which was the coup that overthrew the the pro pro Russian um, president of uh, Ukraine, was uh, engineered in part by this woman named Victoria Newland who had a, uh, a taped conversation got in, intercepted and she and uh, she was with the State Department and another State Department guy and they were talking about who they were gonna pick to replace this uh, ousted Russian mm -hmm. and which became a huge embarrassment to them. But what I only found out very recently is that Victoria Newland used to work for guess who? Dick Cheney. And uh, she's married to the um, founder, one of the founders of what's called the, uh, the New American Century um, document that, that is plan planned to take over the world, basically. And, and so it seems to me that maybe uh, Russia Are those the was, Council on Foreign Relations people? I mean, is that uh, the Rockefellers uh, in that uh, group of thinking? Um, or I mean, is what, it all just based on oil and making money off of oil and using the American mil military machine to back up your business interests? Well, well, yeah, I mean, it is all based largely based on oil. I mean, 
but, but what I what I wanted to say, oh, you mean whether the plan for conquering the mm -hmm. world uh, was based on oil? Well, as again, as I say, oil is 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 the war of the military, which is still not discussed. But you can see, I mean, it's inescapable now as an issue with Ukraine um, crisis, the Ukraine war, because you keep here. Well, how are we going to hit them? Well, we're going to prevent. Uh, Russia from sell, selling any more uh, oil to us or to anybody else. I mean, so if you look very carefully at the origins of this uh, growing dispute between Putin and NATO in the West, you will find uh, documentation, even in the mainstream media, that um, the, their, their plan was to uh, um, take down Putin. That, that was the plan. And, and I'm, I'm sort of thinking that this is in, in line with uh, another document that shows up uh, shortly after September 11th um, that reveals that the, that the Pentagon's plan is to take over uh, seven countries in five years. Uh, and, and they're all named and they're all Middle Eastern and, and they've all been going through terrific conflict and crisis. So uh, I, I would encourage people to look at an article that was published in uh, FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, which describes uh, how we are letting the West off the hook by buying into the argument that this war was quote unquote unprovoked. You hear, you know, you may have seen it on TV here over and over again, oh, this, is, this is an unprovoked war. No, it was provoked. That doesn't justify it. And, uh, but, but let's be clear, uh, the West bears uh, some responsibility for it, not just, not just Russia, but because it's the great game and, you know, and it's a wartime. So you're only gonna get one side of the story and, and uh, what I hope to do and, and fellow uh, pipeline trackers hope to do is to bring people an alternative uh, explanation. I've set up a website called Follow the Pipelines Com, and I'm just beginning to fill it out. Um, there's there's so much work and so little time. Well, let's get to, to the, uh, let's go back in history a little bit. Your dad worked for the CIA and is the CIA's first fallen star, which is, uh, which was to say that he was assassinated. He was, you know, killed in action, essentially. Um, and you found this out. Uh, I mean, you filed uh, Freedom of Information Act requests, Public Record Act re requests uh, to, to really fill in the story and put the puzzle pieces together. Um, your, your dad was in the Middle East. He was uh, on a flight in Ethiopia and they were tracking where possibly they could have a pipeline. Did, who, who was behind it? Did you find, was it the Russians? Was it the British, the French? Who, who ended up today what do you know today well i have uh first of all he wasn't he never was part of the cia it was formed several months after his death okay uh, he, but that's okay um the cia determined that he was basically getting the same training as the new cia officers were and they decided to honor them honor him as their first fallen star. They have this whole ceremony in Langley, Virginia at the headquarters where every year they honor the, uh, the people who had died um, in, in the course of, of their service. I, I think to this day, the CIA is, is not accepting that it was sabotaged, but they're gonna have a problem with this because I uh, had a conversation with one of the CIA officers who uh, replaced my father in the Middle East. And perhaps he had a little too much wine when I went Sherman, to a- someone Sherman? Sorry? Uh, Sherman Russell? No, 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 that's not, it's a, it's, it's a guy, um, I don't know if I name him, but at any rate, he's a top, top person. He told me uh, that um, we always thought it was sabotage, but could never, prove it, which really just got me going even more into looking at as so to who what sabotaged I, the plane. He, they, he thought we always thought it was sabotage. Couldn't prove I, it. Now what, now, what about me? 
Oh yeah, Sherm Russell was my father's uh, best friend back in Winchester, Massachusetts, where he grew up. And um, uh, Sherm thought that it, it had been uh, taken out, you know, um, but, and, and he said, I always thought the Russians did it. And the reason was because my father was, was spying on the Russians a lot at this time. You know, this is the origins of the Cold War really go back to the 40s, even during World War II. Um, they're all spying on each other, frankly, but the Russians were, were what, what was the major concern for the US. So who do I think? Look, I've done a lot of research. I, I think I've made a, a plausible case for uh, the motive and the means to sabotage this plane but I do not have the uh, I I don't have the identity, and I don't I'm not of the characters that would have uh, carried this out, and I don't really I, I don't know exactly how it may have happened. I've got all the uh, internal I have the internal quote unquote accident report that shows all the radio logs and so on. I'd rather sort of leave it as a tease uh, for readers, but I well I'll I'll, I'll give you a, a big huge clue what I think may have happened. Um, both the Russians and the British were fighting America's growing po uh, power in the Middle East and even Africa. And Ethiopia under um, the, uh, the Emperor Selassie had just granted a gigantic, another e uh, exclusive oil concession uh, to the Americans. Uh, the British were furious over this because prior to then they controlled every aspect of Ethiopia's existence. They controlled the airlines, they controlled the railroads, they controlled the roads, everything. And then it, once again, in comes the United States and starts screwing things up for them. So, but the Russians were very In 1776, right? Uh, no, I'm talking about uh, back when the plane uh, crashed, 1947. So the, the British, even though they uh, like on paper are our allies at this time, uh, were surreptitiously doing nefarious uh, activities against the Americans uh, because their empire was shrinking while, let's say, ours was expanding. I mean, is that, that fair? That is fair. And that's a good way of putting it. But I, I do want to also say the Russians were very alarmed. Uh, when they saw that Trans-Arabian pipeline being built, they figured the next thing was that U.S. was going to establish more military bases in the region. And that was a correct um, surmise because what happens? You, the, the state of Israel, I, I'm convinced, uh, was so heavily militarized in order to protect the pipeline. The pipeline ended up in northern, I mean, in southern Lebanon, just, you know, very close to the border of Israel. And uh, with every pipeline, you need military to protect it. Uh, and I've proved this in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, even in, in Yemen. So, but, but to go back, the Russians were concerned about this imperial power building more military bases. And uh, there was one person that seemed to um, combine Russian and British concern about the U.S. rise in power. His name was Kim Philby, and he's the most famous spy of the 20th century, as, as many people may know. Um, he was a double agent in that, spied for the British, but his real loyalties were to the Soviets. And so, um, and I have been able to show that he, he was messing around in Lebanon uh, at the very time, uh, right, right around the time of the blowing up of the King David Hotel in, in uh, Palestine, then Palestine. Uh, and that uh, anyway, he, he, he said there was gonna be uh, more problems uh, in Lebanon. And the idea is that the two heads of British intelligence had heeded his uh, warning to get into Lebanon to try to prevent an attack on British uh, interests in Lebanon. And so they did go. And so some believe that that's why uh, the bombing of the King David Hotel 
um, was, was achieved uh, when, when uh, these two guys, top intelligence people, were off in Lebanon. The problem is that they were right. There was a bombing. There was a bombing of the British embassy and a major bombing of the American embassy in July of 19, I'm sorry, 46. So, uh, so Philby, even though he was posted to Turkey, uh, he was watching everything in the Middle East very, very carefully. And I am just really hoping that I'm going to be able to find someone who can give me more uh, details about what uh, Philby was up to in the Middle East in the years 1946 and 47, as not so, as much so as dad, known. When your dad was America's top master spy in the Middle East at that time, like, let's break it down. So, because uh, it always gets a little confusing with like Cyprus and Lebanon and Beirut and the French were there. Um, and this all came from the carving up after World War One. So it was the French in because I know you were in Lebanon. I mean, you you were shot at by a sniper, weren't you, at the beginning of their civil war? Yes. Yeah. So they that's, speak that, French. That, that's that's nineteen seventy six. Yeah, seventy five. Sorry, nineteen seventy five. Yeah. I so was, Beirut I, and I, Lebanon I was, and Cyprus. That's a like technically a French colony in or it no, was no not Cyprus. No, no, Fr the French, the former French colony was Lebanon and Syria. And after World War II, uh, they, they were created as, as colonies. They were called mandatory uh, regions. And um, really, they were colonies of the French. And the British controlled Iraq, Jordan, and Palestine. And by the way, this was all a total betrayal to the Arabs who had been convinced to join um, in the war on the side of the, um, let's see, the Entente powers, right? Uh, I always get that mixed up. But anyway, on the side of the uh, West in, in World War I. Um, so after World War I, uh, instead of granting the Arabs independence it, 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 as a thank you for their participating in ousting the Turks from that whole region, uh, instead, there were these colonies imposed on them. So that that was sort of the first big betrayal. And then the second big betrayal happened uh, to the Jews um, during during the World War II because uh, there there was the possibility of bombing Auschwitz, which was one of the major killing machines. It could have been bombed, and it could have and and what that would have done would have um, allowed more Jews to uh, go to Palestine, migrate there. And the, the Americans had sent out envoys to, to Ibn Saud, the king of Saudi Arabia, to say, hey, what do you think? You know, um, uh, maybe you, you could be made a president of Palestine in return for letting more Jews in. And Ibn Saud said, absolutely not. I'm not going to do that. Uh, because I think that he perceived that uh, that this homeland uh, for the Jews was was a colonial, a European colonial enterprise uh, benefiting the British, for whom he um, he did not like. He he preferred the Americans. But the whole point is, he didn't want it, and he literally threatened the Americans uh, their their huge oil concession in Saudi Arabia unless they. Um, back Saudi's concern, which meant, no, we don't want um, more Jewish immigration to Palestine. So in those early years, uh, the, the Jews were betray betrayed. And this is only coming out now. One of my hopes is, is to get people talking about how uh, both Arabs and Jews were, were screwed over by the great powers. And once they begin to realize that, there may be less of this uh, you know, are you pro-Arab or are you pro-Israel? You're going to start beginning to think, are you the pro the people of the region or are you pro the uh, the imperial powers? Yeah, there's nothing more terrible than European uh, colonial imperialism, you know, so, uh, but does that come back to the pipelines and getting 
the pipeline because uh, it's getting the, the oil to market. You could be like landlocked and have no access to getting the oil to market. And is that what these wars are over? Not just the oil, but the pipeline to water, essentially. Yeah, yeah, to markets, to markets, whether it's, it's by it, it, exactly. So, so like Afghanistan, here's a here's a prime example. Um, the uh, Taliban, you may know, some people may realize, uh, they they were quite chummy with the Bush administration, and the whole reason was because the Taliban were considered the most Bush uh, one H W right W W. Okay. It, 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 w. Right before the right before 9-11 happened, the Taliban were invited down to this Texas ranch and all the discussions were about how they were going to protect a, uh, a pipeline uh, that was going to run from uh, Turkmenistan through uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, on to India. It's called Tappy after the uh, you know the, the companies that it's running through, and what happened is that that the relations went sour um, after 9/11 because the U.S. immediately afterwards said turn over Osama bin Laden because he masterminded 9/11, and they said well we'll turn him over if you can prove he had something to do with it, and the U.S never did that, never honored that. And so they decided, oh, what the hell, we're gonna go in there uh, and we're, we're gonna fight the Taliban and we'll take over the region. Now, uh, I have a map in the book that shows that the projected route of the TAPI pipeline through Afghanistan uh, was gonna be, be protected along its route by US military bases. And they're all there, they're, you can see them on the map. And Canadians were also protecting the pipeline. So there uh, are a few brave souls who have uh, come out and said that, that the war in Afghanistan was to allow the energy to flow south. And that means to Pakistan and India. And, and is that still the same thing in Iraq? I mean, when they went into Iraq right after uh, whatever Gulf War One or uh, <laughs> Gulf War, you know, operation enduring Iraqi freedom or whatever. The, the the troops, the first thing they did was protect the pipeline instead of going after Saddam. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That the uh, the second one, the the two thousand three invasion of Iraq. Yeah, and and the map in the book shows that that was the first place that the troops were positioned uh, was to protect uh, the Iraq. The same old Iraq petroleum uh, pipeline that used to run uh, during the 30s and the 40s between Iraq and Palestine. And uh, I discovered that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, who was then finance minister in 2003, uh, was heavily lobbying for the invasion of Iraq. And he, he even bragged about how uh, the, the oil would be soon flowing back back to Haifa from Iraq uh, after they toppled Saddam Hussein. And the only reason that didn't happen is because the guy that everyone, the US and Israel had in mind to replace Saddam Hussein uh, was a guy named Ahmed Chalabi. He was an Iraqi living in exile. He was totally pro-pipeline. He was gonna put in, he put in and replace Saddam. But there was one little problem. And that was that he was the guy that came up with the uh, weapons of mass destruction uh, pretext for going in, which was found to be false. So uh, once that got out, that would have really delegitimized uh, the uh, whole U.S. invasion uh, of Iraq. It would have exposed the whole thing. So that pipeline has still not been reopened. But meanwhile, Israel is fashioning itself as a key um, energy corridor uh, for guess what? All the massive oil and gas that's been found off the coast of uh, the Mediterranean coast. And, and, now, um, and so there are disputes going on there between uh, Israel and the Palestinians because some of their uh, Gaza land butts this uh, huge natural gas reservoir. And um, 
then if you look at the map and you see that um, Israel's ambition to be an energy corridor, to take a lot of that Mediterranean natural gas and send it to Europe by going up the coast of the Mediterranean, you find that there are two major obstacles and guess what they are? Lebanon and Syria. They stand in the way of this great dream and Lebanon, um, well, both Lebanon is, is in shambles now, as you may have read, and so is Syria. They're both basically, you know, failed states at this point. Uh, the only reason that-, that uh, The war in Syria, is that Russia, Russia's backing uh, the president now that's in there, Assad. the son, and then- Yeah, Assad. Uh, the, uh, the West, uh, you, what will fund the the rebel fighters? I mean, they're uh, yeah. That's what happened. The U.S. and its allies, some of its Gulf allies, uh, um, were went in there, and it became a proxy war. It's the war. Well, that's that's Syria. Uh, yeah, the Syrian war began uh, with protests, which uh, were genuine against. Uh, um, Assad's harsh dictatorial regime. But then what happened is it, it very soon became a proxy war uh, and civil war. And with the, uh, the West um, going in, uh, sending in mercenaries against Saddam Hussein and the Russians coming, I mean, not Saddam Hussein, Bashar al-Assad and the uh, Russians uh, went in when when Assad said, you've got to help me here or, or this, our whole country is going to be destroyed. So the Russians came in and literally saved the Assad regime. But there was one area where um, there is still a base uh, of operations uh, uh, right near Syria's major oil um, areas, and that's in eastern Syria. So there's been fighting over there, and that's where ISIS was, was formed. I mean, it's really murky, but boy, when you read my book, and then you will start to see what depths these great powers will go to, uh, to get the oil. Remember when Trump said he was going to uh, take out all the troops uh, from Syria, for instance, because there were American troops uh, stationed in this oil area. Sorry? And then he, and then he, uh backpedaled on the statement two weeks later and uh but, but who who's telling the president of the united states what they can do i mean what is it some kind it of like institutional uh, systemic like secret government that's based on taking over the world through uh oil i mean it, it certainly uh, if they took all all the energy and time energy money blood sweat and tears that they put into fighting wars over oil and put it into green energy, and we could actually save the world from climate change. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, power, once you got power, man, it's hard to give it up. And uh, <laughs> by the way, by it's the intoxicating. way, oh, yeah, it could be. Yeah. Uh, but, but the driving force here, which is really the driving force of capitalism, which becomes imperialism, is to constantly find new markets for your products. Okay, that's one of the driving forces of it. But yes, that that's and who are these people? Well, it turns out um, I wrote a book. Actually, the the primary writer of the book was my husband, Gerard Colby. But uh, the two of us spent eighteen years um, investigating the. Uh, the genocide of indigenous peoples in Brazil. And, and uh, so the name of that, what we found out that um, they used missionaries to, to uh, break down indigenous resistance to oncoming oil, oil trucks and ranchers and agribusiness. Uh, the missionaries would uh, pacify the Indians. And if that didn't work, then the, then the military would come in and kill them off. So we, we spent years and years and we finally found out that the, uh, the main orchestrator of the conquest of the Amazon was none other than Nelson Rockefeller, scion of the, uh, the most powerful family in the world uh, at that time, which would have been 
in the, well, he started out in the 40s during World War II of, of um, basically getting control over an entire continent, Latin America. It's a hidden story, but it's all there. And what people have called that book an anatomy of conquest, because once once you understand, once you go to the top of the mountain and then you look down from the standpoint of a Rockefeller, all the pieces start falling in together. And, and we began to learn the mechanics of empire building by by studying uh, Nelson and all of his intrigues in Latin America. So, yeah, they're big. They're very powerful people that remain hidden. Uh, that that are shaping our world. And it does come down to the control of the oil and uh, ensuring that the pipeline is secure. Um, if, yeah. But if you if you just took out fossil fuels, just like do do a thought experiment here for a second. If you uh, if if the world was not bait, it's still capitalism. Everyone's trying to make money. But if there were no fossil fuels as part of it how many of these wars would not have been fought? I mean, we wouldn't have any wars in the Middle East. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I keep saying. I mean, they're, what, they're not fighting over God, they're fighting over oil. Yeah, but 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 they disguise it very well. They're doing it right now. <laughs> you know, you're, you listen to all the talk about Russian propaganda and so on, but they're laying it on thick on our side too. I mean, uh, the truth is the first casualty of war during a uh, during a war, so we know that. But you you got to be very careful what's what's being put out to the Americans as well. But I wanted to come back to the issue of nukes because you know I, how I see it, that we have nuclear submarines now. I I, I sure wouldn't want to be working on one of those subs if it happened to sink. But so far there has not been a hor horrific, as far as I know nuclear accident uh, in submarines. But I'm thinking that, that that's how the war machine will be increasingly fueled, certainly uh, on the seas. Uh, I don't know about airplanes though, but actually the Pentagon is doing a lot of research. They don't want it. They don't want to be involved in these endless wars in the Middle East. They would prefer not to be. Um, the, the, but, the next phase of war, uh, you say, is going to be based on nuclear power, but it could be, uh, you know, solar power or who knows how they're going to store the energy. But Yeah, that's right. But people should, you know, it, it's a good question to look into. I mean, you simply Google it and find out uh, what what alternative energy sources is the pan, is the Pentagon up to today. It's amazing how easily you can find things through Google, actually, even though it has been very effectively hidden from the public. Uh, if you if you take any given conflict, let's say in Africa, for instance, uh, there are a lot of, lot of um, regime changes going on in Africa right now. So, you know, type in the country and type in oil and pipelines and bingo, it comes right up almost inevitably is it's just startling but it's also easy to find but it's the the thing that's fueling our military the thing that's fueling our lifestyle is also contributing through uh, the co2 the carbon being released into the air uh, you know what could be our species downfall so it it, it it's ironic and a like a quasi catch 22 wrapped in an, an enigma that the, the very thing that we've been going after since the industrial revolution and becoming a superpower is the thing that could also be our undoing as a human, as a species on earth. Yeah, and you would think they would realize that. You, you <laughs> especially with these uh, horrific examples of um, climate caused catastrophes, you know, the fires and the floods all over the world. And you know um, the very wealthy—they're uh, not immune to that, and, and they better start waking up and, th and thinking that their kids are to be affected by it. I mean, I—I I, I suppose what they're thinking of right now is they're going to go and set up colonies in space. Who knows? Well, it's really... we, we just, if they found oil on the moon, we, we would—we uh, would be there fighting the Russians, the British, and uh, <laughs> everyone else. Uh, 
uh, tomorrow. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, it, it does seem to be the, I mean, for lack of a better word, the fuel that is driving the last century of war. Yeah, that's exactly right. It is. And um, right now, it, uh, these all these sanctions that are going on right now. Meanwhile, uh, the frack gas uh, industry, which was hugely supportive of Trump, that's where he got most of his money, was from uh, these smaller independents who uh, started to make a lot of money out of frack gas. And what they want to do is, is uh, you know, flood flood Europe with their frack gas. Um, but at any rate, it's you know the other the other. Um, the other source that's up and coming now is lithium, of course, because that is one of the major components to batteries. So they may consider some kind of lithium run uh, Pentagon military machines. Um, but, but what's happening is, is it's turning the whole climate crisis uh, or, or search for alternatives on its head because and I've got some people quoted in uh, my article, uh, which is titled uh, Nukes, Pipelines, and the War in Ukraine. If you Google it, you'll find it, it'll come right up. It's been published by different people, but there are quotations, like one of them is by a former uh, IMF uh, CEO who is saying, well, you know, you gotta start uh, facing reality. It's a little awkward now because here we are, we're always, we're looking for alternative sources of energy, but we gotta, we gotta face reality. And, uh, you know, uh, Biden shouldn't have uh, closed up the tar sands pipeline, for instance. So now there's all this pressure on the Biden administration to reopen these different pipeline projects uh, in the United States. And uh, so I think climate activists have, have really got to get moving here. And, and now that they understand the full dimension, the full horror of the oil and gas industry and what, it, what it's done to our humanity, uh, you know, the sooner they get out there in droves, uh, the better, because all the gains that they've made so far uh, may be put into reverse for practical reasons. Charlotte, I, I do want to thank you for uh, coming on the show and uh, your book, Follow the Pipelines. Uh, it, it was like uh, revisiting my class on the Middle East. Uh, I'm still trying to sort out uh, what goes on in Lebanon, um, but uh, I have been, uh, I have a little more clarity and I understand uh, Syria a lot more um, after reading it. Um, I never really even thought about Greek communists uh, working for the Ethiopian airlines, but now I have. Um, so you've caused uh, um, some new wrinkles in my brain. I appreciate that. And uh, you know, for this to be part of uh, the, the podcast and radio show for you to be coming on um, from Burlington, Vermont, is absolutely wonderful. Um, I think we're coming out there this summer, so we'll have to have a cup of tea um, <laughs> to celebrate the British, and then we'll have a cup of coffee to celebrate the Americans. Um, oh, and to celebrate your podcast, I think it's a wonderful idea. It's just fantastic that you're doing this. It, and it, you're putting it, it all together because you, the oil connection to war hasn't gotten enough um, exposure. And now you're putting it all together. It's fantastic. I'm, I'm telling you, we go Industrial Revolution, uh, World War One, the British switching from coal to oil, uh, throw in a little Iran, and uh, you've got the, the picture coming together. So uh, Charlotte Dennett, the author of Follow the Pipelines, Uncovering the Mystery of a Lost Spy and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game of Oil. Thank you for... Uh, uh, contributing to the understanding of what caused climate change and what we can do to uh, combat it. Um, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to KSUA 91.5 FM, uh, the UAF, the uh, Alaska Fairbanks University radio station. And thank you very much for, uh, thanks for coming on, Charlotte. Thank you. It was wonderful. Thanks a lot, George. And you have a good rest of your afternoon. Same.
You have been listening to Join the Conversation, our radio show and podcast on 91.5 FM KSUA, our college radio station here at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. I am your host, George Christopher Thomas, and I thank you for tuning in.